So uh, I'd like to start with one thank you and two apologies. Uh, thank you to Alberto and to Julian for the invitation to, to come and speak in the conference. The apologies, uh, the first one is this is an elephantine topic that I'm about to stuff into a 30-minute suitcase, so um, it's going to be a bit rapid fire. Uh, and the second apology is related to that in that this work is very much under construction, and um, so it's question-heavy and answer-light, so you may find this deeply dissatisfying. Um, but if you've got the answers, then uh, I'll make lots of notes at the end. Um, so my, my current work is, is on the ethics of sociability. I'm looking at social rights, social duties, social virtue. What do we owe each other as interpersonal people who need some social contact in order to lead minimally decent or flourishing lives? And amongst uh, the, the issues under that heading, ethics of sociability, is freedom of association. What rights do we have to enter into associations? What rights do we have to leave them? What right, rights do we have to reconfigure our intimate associations with each other? And in thinking about the, the topic for today, I uh, started to think about the fact that, that doctors and, and other medical professionals, they play an important role in helping to forge, helping to reshape, and helping to, re uh, to sever or prevent intimate associations through some of the services they provide. So when doctors provide abortions, uh, surrogacy, sex reassignment surgery, euthanasia, um, separation of conjoined twins, they, they play a role that has a significant impact on the configuration or the existence of intimate associations. And I think that intimate associations and, and their moral messiness, which I'm about to unpack, puts a distinctive type of moral pressure on doctors when they consider providing or withholding certain services. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to look at doctors' rights. I'm not going to look at sincere convictions um, or what would go under the heading of, of conscientious objection or what I would call personal objection. Uh, I'm going to look at conscience in an objective moral sense. And um, I'm going to look at doctors and, and nurses and medical practitioners' duties to think long and hard before they provide or withhold certain services because of the link these services have to our intimate associations, which is a very morally complex area. So just start with three conceptions of conscience and um, where, where the notion of conscience I'm working with sits in, in this picture. Uh, one view of conscience um, we get from Joseph Butler, Immanuel Kant, uh, following a Christian tradition is that of conscience as infallible moral guidance. Conscience as the angel on the shoulder or the voice of God or the internal police officer or the internal tribunal. Uh, you know, Kant actually said conscience is the internal tribunal before which your thoughts accuse <coughs> or excuse each other. So conscience actually shows up after you've acted uh, and then tells you whether or not you should be feeling guilty. Um, Butler said conscience gives infallible moral guidance, but we have to listen to it. It's impotent on its own. We have to follow it. I think that picture of conscience is wrong uh, because it doesn't give enough attention to the complexity of morality. It's subjective. It's monistic. That's the important bit. And it also doesn't make any space for an emotional dimension of conscience, that spark of fellow feeling 
that, that jolt of anxiety on, or empathy on someone else's behalf. In my view, that's part of conscience too. Second view of conscience is uh, sort of at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. is a very reductive, um, non-objective, re- relativistic picture of conscience. And the quote from Mencken, uh, conscience is the inner voice that warns <coughs> us someone may be looking. And the idea here is that this is just the psychological pressure you feel to hold to the beliefs you've said you have. And those beliefs might be grossly unjust. They might be your beliefs, they might be your community's beliefs, but you stick to them because you've said you will. Um, and that picture of conscience, I think, is, is, you know, it's something, but it's not conscience. Uh, conscience, if we look at the etymology of the word, conscientia, it, knowledge within your own mind and heart, knowledge of your own thoughts, beliefs, and feelings, um, it actually, you know, that requires a lack of self-delusion. That requires an understanding of how you're thinking and feeling. And there's some nice evidence from contemplative neuroscience that the people who really understand their own beliefs, perceptions, and feelings, as well as how other other people are feeling, are people who've cultivated virtue practically. Uh, So there's a lot of studies being done at University of Wisconsin-Madison on monks, long-term meditators, who've spent time practically cultivating wholesome states like care, compassion, forgiveness, kindness, and that they are the ones who have conscience in the sense of inner knowledge, inner understanding. And so that's the, the notion of conscience I find attractive, uh, is that we have an objective picture of conscience, someone who's morally sensitive, someone who's morally responsive, ge- has genuine moral understanding, but understands that morality is very complex. So taking a pluralistic view of morality and then trying to fit an objective picture of conscience within that. That's, that's the way I try to think about conscience. Uh, so conscience, in, in my view, it's not something you can simply assert you have. Conscience is something you cultivate. You can't just you know, sort of put it up as a block or a shield against regulation <coughs> or reproof. It's something you work toward. Developing an inner knowledge and an understanding, developing moral skill. It's sort of a lifetime project to, to cultivate conscience. Once someone does cultivate conscience, they're very sensitive to their moral responsibilities. You know, what is their role? What, is their, what are their circumstances? What are their skills? And what moral sensitivity should they have in light of the powers and privileges they, they have? And uh, in the cases I'm going to discuss now, sort of morally messy relationships and, and medical mm-hmm. services, I think sometimes conscience can really only offer a picture of what your imperfect moral options are. It actually can't help you to privilege one over another. It'll help you identify the salient features, but it'll actually make it very difficult to decide how to act. Okay, so um, slight detour into the ethics of sociability and the nature of intimate association. At the moment, I'm thinking about morally wrong associations, because many of our associations are actually morally wrong. Uh, and I'm going to explain ones that are wrong in content, in form, in form and content, or ones that are indirectly wrong. So an intimate association is morally wrong in its content when that prevailing content should be something else. So a marriage that is abusive, or a parent-child relationship that's abusive, you could have your ordinary marriage, your ordinary you know, heterosexual, traditional, church-blessed, legal, consensual adult marriage, but if the content is if the prevailing content is that of abuse, then it's morally wrong in content. It should be other than it is. 
Associations that are wrong in form shouldn't exist, even if their content is morally fine. So an underage marriage, you know, a 10-year-old married to an adult or two children married to each other, that association, that intimate association should not exist, even if the parties treat each other very well and very age-appropriately and caring, caringly. Same thing, if a person really wants to be a parent and they kidnap a child and then raise that child beautifully, if we didn't know the backstory, we wouldn't object to the association, the content is morally fine, but the form is morally wrong. Uh, it, it's come about through the wrong process. It shouldn't exist. Same with the parent-child relationship, it comes as a result of rape. Um, you know, the, the biological parent who engaged in rape against the other biological parent and then is parenting the child, they have no right to be in that relationship. That relationship, that parent-child relationship should not exist. So it's wrong in form. Some associations are then wrong in both form and content. So uh, if you know the fairy tale Rapunzel, uh, Rapunzel is being raised by her parents. Um, the different, different versions what happens, but in one version the, the witch kidnaps Rapunzel so, because the witch wants to have a child, so the association's wrong in form. The witch then locks her up in a tower and dominates and neglects her, so it's wrong in content. Uh, and then an abusive underage marriage is both wrong in content and wrong in form. Apologies for the speed. And then finally, uh, some associations, they're not really wrong either in their content or their form, but there's still something, they, there's still something wrong about them. And this case is sort of loosely based on the story of Michelle Knight. Michelle Knight was one of the three women who were kidnapped and held captive by Ariel Castro in the States for over 10 years. Um, I say it's loosely based on her because uh, before she was kidnapped, she actually had lost custody of her child. Um, so this isn't quite her story. But uh, if a woman's kidnapped and held captive for several years and her child's put into foster care and then adopted by the foster family, when the woman finally escapes, she has a right to raise her child, but it's now in her child's best interest to be with the foster family. Um, so you know, the foster family's association with the child, it's not wrong in form, if it's a loving relationship, it's not wrong in, uh, it's not wrong in either content or form. Come it came about in the right process, has the right content, but nonetheless, the mother you know, has a pre-existing claim to be the parent to her child. Okay, uh, almost on to medicine. I think the kinds of cases I've just given, many of them to me seem very morally messy. They seem, they, at least they put my intuitions in a tight spot. <coughs> I find it very difficult to say what should happen in some of these cases. You know, if, if someone did kidnap a child and was raising them beautifully for many years, it seems it's not actually in the child's best interest to say, no, this person should be going to jail and this child should be returned to their parents. But, you know, there's a, a loving, intimate association here, and ex post, we have to take that into account. Ex ante, we can say this association shouldn't exist, but ex post, it does, and that changed the moral ballgame. So that's, uh, that makes the same point. I won't go into, I'll, I can go into this in a bit more as to why I think morally messy associations come up and um, what informs them, but I'll, I'll move on to medical cases now. Actually, before I do, just a little bit about disassociations. Uh, when we 
leave associations or we refuse to form associations that also can often be morally wrong. So people, when we are in associations, people have legitimate expectations of us. They, they often you know, love and care about us. There's a mutual commitment. There's interdependence. And when we sever those bonds, we're often doing something that is morally objectionable. So here are a few examples of morally wrong disassociations. Uh, Gauguin leaves his wife and children in order to become a great painter. Gauguin, too, leaves his family to become a great painter, and he fails to do so. Uh, Sophie, in Sophie's choice, she's forced to choose one of her children to save. And if she doesn't choose a child, they'll both be killed. And then the last one, this comes from a novel um, by Leanne Moriarty called The Hypnotist Love Story. And one of the characters uh, is a girlfriend to a widower, and she's been raising his toddler with him. And she's been doing this for three, four years, and then the widower decides to end his relationship with her. And because she was the girlfriend, not uh, a legal partner, and because she hadn't adopted the toddler, the young child, she had no rights. She was suddenly out of the picture. And so not only did she lose her relationship with the widower, she'd lost her, her son. And uh, in the story, she actually becomes a stalker because she can't, she can't let go. So she starts to, she's texting the husband, the, the widower all the time, have you remembered his sweater? Do you know he doesn't like carrots? And um, sort of, you know, that plays out. But that's a disassociation that's, to my mind, very morally complicated. And then there's reshaping associations. So two parents, they decide to divorce. Um, that radically reconfigures their association which, with their children, and in a way that I think is probably wrongful, but other things being equal, uh, I would say their freedom of association does protect them in deciding to end their intimate association with each other. Okay, medical cases. So this is, this is where I'm going to give you a bunch of cases related to where I think medical professionals contribute to forging <coughs> associations, some where they contribute to severing and uh, preventing associations, some where they contribute to reconfiguring <coughs> associations, and then I'll give you a brief analysis of some of these cases, but as I say, there will be more question marks uh, than, than helpful answers. Um, and many of the cases are based on real-life cases, uh, so forging associations, an 11-year-old girl is raped by her brother and becomes pregnant, she wishes to keep the child, not to, not to have an abortion, and she becomes a mother at the age of 12. A woman who has six children already uh, has IVF with 12 embryos, and she gives birth to a further eight children. A mother wishes to use her deceased daughter's frozen embryos in order to give birth to a grandchild, and then more futuristically, a man wants to clone his wife who's died so he can raise uh, the girl as their baby. Reshaping associations. This one I think is really interesting. Um, so being a conjoined twin is a, is a rare state of embod embodiment. And I actually know of only one case of conjoined twins, adult conjoined twins, who wanted to be separated. Uh, they were two Iranian women, and they died uh, in the surgery to separate them. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if such a case would happen where one twin wished to be separated from their sibling and another twin didn't. Uh, but I think that would be very morally, morally complex for a doctor to consider. A second case, a couple becomes pregnant through IVF and they discover once the baby's born that the clinic made a mistake and used another woman's egg or another man's sperm or both. 
Third case, parents decide to have their four-year-old conjoined twins separated for general health reasons, not life-saving reasons. So the twins are four-year-olds, they're not giving informed consent, they're, you know, they're not able to make a decision about this reconfiguration <coughs> of their connection with each other. And then finally, sex reassignment surgery, uh, the Eddie Redmayne movie, uh, the Danish girl I think sort of captures this kind of case of how does that affect a marriage, how does that affect parenting? when someone has <coughs> sex reassignment surgery. Severing and preventing associations. So suppose doctors could separate infant conjoined twins and save only one, uh, and the doc uh, parent is invited to help them decide which infant to save. A uh, couple becomes pregnant through IVF, and then the woman decides at 20 weeks that she can't continue, she doesn't want to continue with the pregnancy, and she has an abortion without telling her partner. And then, final case, a father of two young children, who, and he has quadriplegia. He decides to end his life through euthanasia. Okay, so um, there's a lot of cases, a lot of content. I think there's a paper in each, in each one of these stories. But I'm just going to highlight a few. I think you know, if doctors are confronting these cases, how do you act with conscience? How do you come to some kind of determination <coughs> that thinks about the patient's best interests, that is sensitive to that situation. And um, in terms of an overarching answer, uh, which I say is, um, you're not really going to get, it's looking, thinking about these cases has prompted me to become more friendly toward moral particularism. I think that's sort of maybe the punchline that I think uh, moral particularism, <coughs> that there's no principle that we can give, that in fact at best we've got rules of thumb for the really hard cases, uh, that that's maybe the answer. So in the case of the 12-year-old girl who's raped by her brother and becomes pregnant and doesn't want an abortion, one question to ask you is how young is too young? Um, assuming Wikipedia is credible on this point, which is always doubtful, uh, they list the youngest birth mothers in the world, and the youngest one was reportedly five. So, but there are mothers, birth mothers who've been six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's funny, by the, you read this list, and by the time you get to ten, you start thinking, Okay, that's that's older. <laughs> like awful, you know, awful. And and these some of these cases are in the 1800s, but some of them, according to Wikipedia, are you know 2010, 2011. Many cases in the states, a um, couple of cases in the UK. And such a child is not competent to decide for or against an abortion. Um, so what are a doctor's duties to such a child? And so one question is whether to apply ex ante or ex post reasoning. Um, <coughs> it would seem in the case of uh, you know, the youngest mother in Britain at the moment, was this is her story, and she decided while pregnant she would not have an abortion. Um, it was, you know, her decision was respected, she was deemed to be competent. But ex ante, you know, that situation should not have happened to her. And you know, IVF clinic could have a 12-year-old come to them and say, I would like to have a baby, please. You know, the IVF clinic could never justify impregnating her. So, you know, I'm assuming most people with medical experience would say an abortion's off the table. But I'm wondering why, given such a child's not competent to judge. And, and indeed, she had the baby, the baby had to go into care because she went, you know, she was on drugs. She was homeless. She wasn't able to care for the child. She's now 21. Uh, you know, she's her life's changing, but you know, that's sort of the tragic story that goes with such a case. 
multiple children, I think this is a bit more straightforward um, in that I do have an intuition. Uh, and that parents have a duty not to, not to give birth to or to adopt too many children, since they cannot be good parents to all of them. And doctors have a duty not to risk overburdening parent-child associative bonds. Reshaping associations. Uh, so um, I'll try and say in, in 30 seconds why I think Mill and the liberal <coughs> view about freedom association is wrong. Mill says we have a right to choose the society that's most acceptable to us. That's false. Um, it's false for a couple of reasons. One is that consent matters often. So the society that's most acceptable to you might not think you're the most acceptable society. Uh, but consent doesn't always matter. So you know, a child cannot consent to the parent-child relationship that they're put into. The baby can't consent. Uh, in many cases, your know, parents are in that association and they have a duty to stay in it. And if, you know, they don't have a moral permission simply to exit the association. Um, if people did have the right to choose the society that's most accessible to them, or indeed to choose no society, or at whim to reject the society that they decide is not acceptable to them, we'd confront the what if everyone did that problem? What if everyone said, I'm not raising that baby? Um, or if everyone said, I'm not caring for that elderly person? And the third is that we care actually very much about the content of associations. Freedom of association is not like the other freedoms that we listed off with. We talk about freedom of expression, <coughs> freedom of religion, freedom of movement, freedom of association, and we, we just keep going. But freedom of expression, you know, that is meant to be broadly content insensitive, to protect you when you want to say things that are highly objectionable or even harmful. But freedom of association, we care about the content um, and indeed the form that associations take. So if you know, an adult does not have a freedom of association protection to enter into a sexual relationship with a child. Once in that association, things are morally complicated, and that's sort of what I'm gesturing toward. But in advance, your, your right to act wrongly in the associated decisions is much more limited than your right to speak freely. Um, now, in case of separating conjoined twins, so one twin wants to be separated, the other twin doesn't. Um, anyone I've asked about this has an intuition, and it is that the person who wants to be separated, their wish should be privileged. And I'm guessing, you know, with certain qualifiers, that it's not life-threatening to either party, uh, or at least not life-threatening to the non-consenting <coughs> twin, um, that it's perhaps not health-threatening to either party, or at least not to the non-consenting twin. Uh, that said, you know, being conjoined is not like being married. This is your your embodiment. You are nat your natural natural. Your your embodiment is one of being conjoined. So I don't actually have a good clear intuition. I think the only thing that would push my intuition toward separation is if we could confidently say that it's not in the interest of both parties to remain conjoined. It's not in the interest of the sibling who doesn't want to be separated not in her interest to remain conjoined to a sibling who doesn't want to be conjoined to her. Uh, another one on reshaping associations. So this is the IVF clinic makes a mistake and uh, a couple gives birth to a child who's not genetically, connect, genetically related to them or not genetically related to one of them. Um, and here, uh, I think what's interesting is if we compare it with surrogacy cases and how much gestation matters. So in my understanding about surrogacy is that 
There's been a move away from genetic surrogacy to purely gestational surrogacy, and gestation has not been privileged when competing claims are made uh, to have the right to raise the child. So a woman who's been a gestational surrogate, if after giving birth she says she <coughs> wants to keep the child, my understanding is courts have not ruled in her favor. They've ruled in favor of the genetic, um, or at least those who signed the contract uh, that they could be the parent. And so if gestation doesn't matter or isn't to be privileged, why should it be privileged in an IVF case where a mistake is made? Um, why should the couple who have a child, who's, who've given birth to a child through IVF, it's not biologically theirs, why should their claim be privileged? Uh, sexual assignment surgery, I think this one's only contingently morally complicated. So there's an interesting documentary about um, a couple in the States named Meg and Nicola Cowie. And uh, it, Meg and Nicola were, um, until 2008, they were Meg and Neil Cowie. And uh, they've been together since 1990 for 18 years. And then in 2008, Neil confronted the fact that he really identified as being a woman and wanted to seek sex reassignment surgery. And in some of the interviews with Meg, she talks about the fact that she, she really hated, at some point, she, you know, she hated Nicola. She hated, she thought Nicola had killed her husband. But um, you know, the documentary sort of goes on and describes how you, know, you need to be strong to go through such an experience, but that ultimately you know, a marriage can, can survive it. And, you know, now the worst they feel they have to deal with are disapproving looks when they walk down the street in, in Oregon as a, as a lesbian couple. But, um, but it was sort of part, you know, it ultimately didn't prove to be uh, impossibly, impossible in moral terms to, to surmount the decision to have rex, sex reassignment surgery. Okay, uh, preventing associations. Uh, if doctors can save only one of two conjoined twins, should the parents be involved in the decision of which to save? Uh, I have no intuition there. Um, and, and I think, again, sort of have this rather particularist leaning that it's going to depend on the case. So there's going to be a lot of variation. Uh, following IVF, a woman has an abortion and she doesn't inform her partner. Here, you know, like UK <coughs> law protects privacy. You your parents will not be informed, your partner will not be informed, you can have an abortion and no one will know in advance. But given the joint commitment, given the joint enterprise, um, you know, I, I think the partner has a claim to be involved in the decision in the pregnancy and I don't actually think it matters whether or not their, their genetic material has been used. Finally, on severing preventing associations, the father of quadriplegia um, <coughs> who wants to use euthanasia, does it matter that he has dependents? Uh, does it matter if he has or does not have a spouse? I think actually could use the presence or absence <coughs> of a spouse either way to argue for conclusion. Uh, the, the novel Me Before You deals with this case. It's not the case of a father, it's the case of a son um, uh, who, has, who wants to seek euthanasia. And um, it does a nice, a fairly nice job of, of laying out some of the moral issues of how to balance someone's preferences with those of their family. I think it would have been more interesting if he'd had dependents. It would have been more morally complicated if he'd had dependents. Uh, and some other cases, just to end with a few questions. Should a doctor provide IVF treatment to a couple if the doctor suspects <coughs> that one partner is abusive? Um, in the novel, the tiger's wife 
Uh, you have a case where a doctor heals as well, you know, so as quickly and as well as possible, a young girl who's been abused by her husband, knowing that she will be returned to her husband. And then related to that, should a doctor heal as, as quickly and as well as possible, a soldier that will be immediately returned to the war. <coughs> and finally, so this is where I ended up with a, I'm really sorry, there are no principles. Um, there are lots and lots of questions in the hard cases. And I think that's sort of where, I think that is what conscience ultimately means, is a moral sensitivity, a willing to, willingness to look at the details of a case, the motivations, <coughs> the, the backgrounds, the commitments of the people involved um, before making a judgment. Okay, thank you.